Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. We're starting this new, uh, this new series. I don't know how long this is going to go. We've got several uh, submissions already of different topics, different thoughts. But the, here's the idea. It's uh, Christian gymnastics. I found uh, a picture, I think, that illustrates what I'm talking about with this. And it's this idea that over the years, uh, and we've had 2,000 years of church history, that we have, um, in general, contorted Scripture, contorted the Word of God into saying things and meaning things that I, I uh, am challenged to consider, is that truly what was meant or what was said initially, originally? And so I think it's um, a good idea at times uh, to take a look at some of these, let's call them difficult scriptures, let's call them uh, 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 common understanding thing, things that are commonly understood in the body of Christ, and just challenge them. Because a lot of them that we're going to find, I think, have just simply been taking the scripture and twisted them, the scriptures, to say something that they don't really say. Every four years we have the, gymnast, uh, the, the, the Olympics. My kids, you know, their favorite thing, you know, is the gymnastics portion. And I'm like, you know, why is football not in the Olympics? You know, that would make it so much more enjoyable. But anyways... Um, they, uh, you're seeing some of these athletes do some of the crazy things that they do with their bodies. It's just, it's quite, you know, remarkable. And uh, our girls have taken a couple of, uh, like, you know, sessions of gymnastics and whatnot. And Riesling calls them nastics. She doesn't pronounce the gym, you know, part. So that's kind of cute. Uh, we're going nastics, Daddy. Um, and so, you know, seeing these people do these crazy things with their body, it's, it's, it's inspiring. It's really cool. It's, it's fascinating. Um, but when we do the same thing to Scripture, it's not inspiring, it's not cool, it's not fun, it's not healthy, it's not uh, in, in, in edifying to the body. And so I think it's um, helpful at times to take a look at some passages, some of these, some of these uh, passages that we'll look at over the course of this, we've, we've looked at before, some of them we haven't. And if you have a particular passage that you've um, you know, or, or have thought about, or like, how does this fit in with the new covenant message? How does this particular passage connect? Uh, submit it, uh, and we'll take a look at it. I'm not suggesting that I have all the answers, but uh, we'll at least, you know, be honest and take a look at it and see, you know, what, what the scripture might actually be suggesting or teaching us. Um, I'm convinced that if this is true, that the scriptures are true, that there is not a, a contradiction, there is not um, uh, uh, issue with the scriptures. I think it is issue with us being able to understand what the scriptures are actually, in fact, saying, and uh, understanding the culture in which it's being said, and then realizing that that culture is not our culture, and so we have to understand the culture in order to understand what's going on. So this week we're going to tackle 
probably one of the biggest uh, biggest gymnastics, Christian gym, gymnastics, uh, because it affects so intimately our understanding of who God is. You know, Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesians and to others, he, he talks about the whole point of this Christian life is that we get to know God, that we get to know Jesus, that we get to truly know him and experience him. And it is, I think, rather impossible to experience somebody, to know somebody, if we don't know the truth about that person, about what they've done. Um, and so we could, we could all, you know, give an example of, of somebody that you know about you know, but you know about that person through, you know, what others have said about them or about, you know, the reputation in the community or whatnot. But you yourself haven't, you know, personally met them. You just heard things about them. And so you, so we develop these ideas based on what others say, but we don't really know personally, intimately for ourselves about the individual. And that's this passage here today feeds that misconception, I believe, about the Lord um, and it teaches us something that he is not. And I think it's uh, a disgrace. And so we're going to try to uncontort, discontort, recon, uh, un, whatever that proper neg- negative of contort is, and just straighten this thing out because I think it's pretty important. We sang a song a few minutes ago called There's Power in the Blood. Um, I remember singing that as a kid uh, growing up. I'm sure you, if you grew up in a church, you sang that as well. Um, but how much power is in this blood? Is it just enough? Let's don't go too crazy. What kind of power is in this blood? Because what we believe about what the blood of Jesus Christ did really answers the question of how much power we really believe is in the blood of Jesus. And so this passage that we're going to take a look at is the very famous passage that every believer more than likely has heard or been taught or come across at some point in their life. And it's 1 John chapter 1, verse what? Nine. So in general, and this isn't every experience, but in general, when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, they're taught in the understanding of the gospel that Jesus has died for their sins. He's rose from, risen from the dead. And by faith in him, we have eternal life. Our sins are forgiven. We have a fresh slate. We are new Christians. We're new believers. We're new creations, even as said sometimes. And now we are, God is our father. Jesus is our brother, you know, so forth and so on. And off we go on this new path of service to the Lord. And then you continue and things are really exciting and go well. And then all of a sudden there is a, um, a teaching that creeps in, generally speaking, not everybody. You can testify to this yourself of, OK, now that you're a Christian, now that you're saved, it is incumbent upon you. It's incumbent upon a believer to. And then here comes some conditions to this relationship with the Lord. And a big one, this is one we're talking about today, is this idea of, quote, keeping short accounts with God. Anybody heard that phrase before? Keeping a short account with God, a couple of you. Um, this is something that's, that's huge in, in, um, in the world that I come from, but keeping short accounts with God because you don't want too many sins to stack up between you and God. 
Uh, otherwise, things are going to get uh, blurry between you and him. Things are going to get difficult. Things are going to get a little distant. You're going to you know, not feel very connected. And so we need to keep short accounts with him, short sin accounts. And how do we do that? That's a great question of how we do that. In the Old Testament, how did they keep, quote, short accounts with God? They had a whole sacrificial system. They brought animals into the temple. They brought money. Paying tithes was a part of the sacrificial system in a certain sense. And they, they paid money. They brought animals. And they would offer these animals. Blood would be shed uh, in order to, quote, remove the accounting of sins on their behalf. Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us plainly that the shedding of blood of animals and goats never took away sins. It was all symbolic of something to come. And so in the Old Testament, there's, you know, let's get Fido out, you know, of the backyard and take him up to the temple. And, you know, our accounting is improved. Well, we don't really do that. No, I was never taught that. I was never taught to take, you know, Fido up to the church and, you know, slay him in front of the altar. But what are we taught? Or not necessarily you specifically, but in general, what is being taught in Christianity to keep short, short accounts with God? Is it sacrificing of your pets? No. It's what? Confess your sins. So spend some time alone with God. You better do it regularly because you don't want those sins to add up. Spend some time regularly talking with God about your sins, specifically asking him to forgive you of said sins so that, what's the point? So that you can then be forgiven of those sins and that you can then be cleansed of those sins so that you can then be closer, cleaner, uh, more intimate, etc. with the Lord. And so what does that look like on a daily basis? For me, for the first 31 years of my life, here's what it looked like. Before going to bed, I would, as I'm drifting to sleep, I would do everything that I could to remember every sin that I did that particular day. And I would list them out. I wouldn't really be consumed with how good God is. I wouldn't really be consumed with how wonderful and majestic and, and, and grateful I should be for what he is and, and what he's done. My concern was, I, if I die in the middle of the night, man, I don't want to have any sin on my account. So I fall asleep talking about and asking for the forgiveness of my sins. And then I fall asleep and I feel better about it. That's how I was uh, brought up. Others in different denominations, different groups uh, would spend time on a certain day of the week with a priest in a little closet and you would talk about your sins and you get absolved from them in that sort of fashion. Other groups would at the end of the service, they'd have literally this thing called the altar at the front. If you've been in a church where it's called the altar, the prayer rail, the altar, whatever. And you'd come forward and you get on your knees and you would pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins right there as a, you know, as a whole group. Um, so there's a lot of different ways in which this happens, but it is a steady a uh, consistent thing in different groups that as we sin, the accounting is stacking up and we need to do something in order to remove that accounting, to keep short accounts with God. Um, I don't know of anyone who talks about keeping no accounts with God, but keeping short accounts with God. Because I'm going to be honest, there's going to be an accounting, you know, you're going to live perfectly. So just keep it short. And so... This was Christianity for me.
fortunately, and I won't get into my whole story right now, some of you already know it, obviously, but uh, the Lord graciously opened my eyes to the foolishness of this. And then afterwards, it got me thinking, if, if our system, if our system of relationship with the Lord or even forgiveness of sins is based on me remembering my sins from that day, here comes the what ifs. What if I, what? Forget, forget one. I mean, what if I forget a sin and I don't ask God to forgive me of that sin? What then? What if I forget? Oh, well, I've heard this. I've said this. Oh, well, if you forget, God forgets and it's all good. So really the answer to our intimacy and closeness with God in the new covenant is um, amnesia. Well, if I can just forget all of my sins, then God forgets them and we're good. So let's stop trying to remember them. But then they was, I was taught the Holy Spirit lives in me to remind me of my sins. It was just so, you know, contorted. So what if we forget a sin? What if we skip a day and don't ask for forgiveness that day? And we don't spend the next day thinking of the previous two days. What if a sin doesn't get forgiven? Then what? Then we've got to further contort the gospel to say, okay, well now you're forgiven, okay? You're forgiven forensically. So we start to make up words. You're forgiven um, relationally, but you're not forgiven fellowshiply. You're not forgiven intimately. You're not forgiven practically. You're forgiven positionally. And we start making up all these words, all these phrases, all these things that are nowhere in the scripture to try to make sense of something that doesn't make any sense. This idea of uh, ongoing progressive forgiveness based upon our ability to remember and ask. So our great and generous God is now dependent upon our memory and our faithfulness in order to maintain fellowship and union with us. Is that good news? Is that good news that God is depending upon my memory and my faithfulness to remain in union with me? What was it that, that caused Adam and Eve to lose life? We know this. What was it? Yeah, sin. They sinned. It was disobedience. They sinned. They lost life because of sin. The wages of sin is death. We know this. Let's not contort this. We know this very, very simply. The wages of sin is death. And um, so they needed forgiveness of their sin in order to receive life. Well, what is the wages of sin today? Has the wage of sin changed? Absolutely not. The wage of sin is what? Death today. So if there be any accounting at all of God, of sin on your account with God, the wage of that is death. And here's the good news. God is not waiting for you to remember your sins. He already counted all your sins. But then we stumble upon this verse in 1 John. So let me say this first. So you say, well, what? We, we've obviously heard, you know, the scriptures explained here at Life Journey. We, we clearly hear the New Testament being about once and for all, complete total forgiveness of all sins for all time, which we'll see again here in 1 John. 
Um, so why are people confused on this? Why is there a confusion? Why is there a teaching? Why is there a contortion of the gospel to say that it is a progressive ongoing forgiveness and not a once and for all? I mean, when the writer of Hebrews says that he, we has uh, died once and for all, why is that not a, um, a done deal? Why is it not settled? And there, one reason is because of a verse that we're going to take. It's not the verse's fault. It's because of our fault of, uh, I remember Hebrews which says, uh, talking about the first covenant, finding fault with them, he instituted a second covenant. It wasn't the first covenant's fault. It's the people's inability to keep the first covenant. So it's not the script. It's not first John 1, 9's fault. It's our misunderstanding of first John 1, 9. First John 1, 9 is awesome. I use 1 John 1, 9 every day to remind myself of how clean I am, but I used to use it every day to remind myself of how dirty I am and in need of cleansing. It's very strange how this is transpiring. And so 1 John 1, 9 does say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're going to see it. In a, in a minute. On face value, if we confess, okay, we do something, he is faithful and just to forgive us, then he'll do something and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we get dirty throughout the day, we need to take time to confess the dirt and then he forgives us of the dirt and then we get a little bit cleaner and then we get dirty and we get we confess and we get cleaner. And so 1 John 1, 9 has become the Christian's bar of soap to keep us clean in this daily walk called Christianity. Quite honestly, and I've read through the scriptures several times, I don't know of any other verse in the New Testament written by the apostles where there is any sort of similar allusion to uh, you confess, then you get forgiven sort of a deal. First John 1, 9 is it. There is no other. You read through all of Paul's apostles, Paul's epistles, and you're not going to find anything that suggests if you confess, then you'll get forgiven. You can read through James. James does say that if we confess our sins one to another, we'll be healed. Okay, but that's because there's issues between one another. But he's not talking about confessing sins to God. You can read through, um, so James, Peter, Peter makes it super clear that we've been forgiven once and for all. So what is John thinking? Why would John, nobody else, why would John suggest that if you confess your sins, then God will forgive you of your sins on an ongoing, daily, continual basis? Why would he do that? Great question. Why would he do that? And I'm going to suggest to you before we get to the end that he's not saying that. We just have, we, Christianity, have become very lazy and we just pull a verse out of its context and we condemn, we put people back under the old system. We're not bringing Fido to have him slayed and bloodshed. We're just the, 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 the new covenant version of Fido dying. Confession in order to be forgiven. It's our sacrifice. So what we're going to do is we're going to start at the beginning and very quickly walk through 1 John chapter 1. It's just 10 verses. We're going to quickly walk through it, and I'll let you, I mean, obviously, I'm going to give you my thoughts on it, but I'll let you decide. Let the Spirit of God in you decide what is happening come verse 9. Honestly, by verse 3, it should be pretty clear, but I'll let you decide. Don't let me, don't just take what I'm saying and be like, oh, well, Walt said. That's how we got into this mess. Let's use the Spirit of God in us and these brains that God has given us to know for ourselves the truth. So this is the Apostle John. He's older. He's writing this letter. 
This is the very beginning. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, talking about Jesus, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. So the reason I have these we's in red and the you's in red is because there's a we and there's a you. We have seen, we have tasted, we have touched, we have looked at, we have seen this Jesus who became, it's God who became a man in the person of Jesus. We saw it. You can't take it away from us. I, John, leaned against his bosom and asked him, who is it that's going to deny him? I've touched him. I was there at the cross when he said, John, Mary, Mary, John, you know, you're going to take care of her. I've seen him. I have touched him. You can't deny it. Now, this is years after the ascension. And John is saying, we, whoever the we is, we've seen it. We know these things to be self-evident that all men are created. No, that's a different document. We know these things. We know what's going on. We've seen it. We've tasted it. We've touched it. We've looked at it. We know it. You can't convince us otherwise. But there's a you. He's writing to people who apparently what? Didn't see it. Didn't touch it. Didn't taste it. Didn't smell it. Didn't see it. Okay? So we've seen it. We're testifying to you that who the eternal life is, talking about Jesus, which was with the Father and was manifest to us. So there's an us and a you. There's a we and a thee, if you will. Verse 3, what we have seen, what we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. So there's clearly two parties. There's people who have seen and, are in, and believe in Jesus and what he's done for them. And there's a group that hasn't. We want you to be in fellowship with us. And indeed, uh, John is not uh, mincing words here. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now let's pause here for a second. Let's make sure we understand what he's saying. This is like the prologue. This is like, this is what this whole book is all about. If we miss the first, what is this, three verses, we're going to miss the rest of the whole book. This is the introduction. This is the foreword. This is, if we miss this, we're going to miss it all. We've seen it. We've tasted it. We've touched it. We've held it. We've experienced it all. And we're here to tell you about it. Our fellowship is with Jesus. And here's what we want. We want your fellowship to be with us. So let's just use our brains. Who is their fellowship not with at the present time when he's writing this? Not with who? Not, they are non-believers. And, and indeed, our fellowship was with the Father. John's fellowship is with Jesus, with the Father. And their fellowship is not with Jesus and not with the Father's. They're unbelievers. That's exactly right. So your fellowship is not with us. Our fellowship is with Jesus. And here's our desire. Our desire is so that you may have fellowship with us. So there is those who are with Jesus and fellowshipping with Jesus, believers in Jesus. And there are those who are not. And John is saying, here's why I'm writing this. We saw it. We tasted it. We touched it. We want to report it to you so that you can be with us. Because you're not. You're not in fellowship with us. Verse 4. These things, oh, well, this is what I just said. 
these things we write. Well, how many people are writing the book of John? I mean, do they take turns writing chapters? We is including this group of, test of believers, whoever it is. We don't know who all this is. But John is saying, this is, we're writing this stuff to you. He's including more than just himself in this group. We're writing this so that our joy may be complete. John's desire is for these unbelievers to become what? Believers. I mean, are we all on the same page? Because if we're not on the same page so far here, then come verse 9, I mean, we're, we're not going to be on the same page. There's a we, there's a you. There's an us, there's a y'all. There's a separation. We're in fellowship with Jesus. You're not in fellowship with Jesus. And I'm writing this so that you can get on the Jesus train and have fellowship with us. We together? All right. Verse 5. Now he starts testifying of Jesus. He starts telling them about Jesus, about what has transpired, what, about what Jesus has, has done, has done for them, has done to them. He says, this is the message this is the testimony. This is the content of what we're here to write you. We, again, I put it in red just for emphasis. We have heard from him and announced to you. So there's this we and you still going on. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, Yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, what is John saying here? What's the darkness? What's, is, he, is John saying, if we say that we believe in Jesus, but then we stumble in daily life and sin, then we don't have the truth in us. Is that what John is saying? I certainly hope not, because if that was the uh, condition of salvation, then who of us have it? It is not an inheritance. It is a earnings, right? It's a dividend. So that certainly isn't what he's saying. So what is this darkness? What is this darkness that he's referencing? We are walking in the light. You're walking in darkness. I think at minimum, it's the light, the understanding, the revelation, the insight of what Jesus actually came and did versus the darkness of a lack of understanding or a lack of belief at minimum of what Jesus came and did. So there's a light and there's a darkness. There's a receiving of what Jesus fully has done for them and to them versus a rejection of what Jesus has done. You're walking around in darkness. And so if we say we have fellowship with him, yet if we say we have fellowship with God, with Jesus, but then we say, but Jesus really didn't die for our sins. He really didn't have a body because this was a, a belief system in this time period that Jesus couldn't have been uh, flesh because if he was flesh, then he had been sinful. And so he was just sort of a spirit sort of a thing. If, if, if that's what we believe, then the truth isn't in us. We have to believe that Jesus fully came as a man and fully died and became sin for us. So if we walk around in that darkness of misunderstanding, as Paul calls it, the darkened of hearts of misunderstanding, talking about Gentiles, then, then we don't practice the truth. We, we don't live in the reality. That's what truth is, remember? Reality. We don't live in the reality of what Jesus has done. But, okay, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
So we can stop right here in verse 7, not even get anywhere further into verse 9, and we can make a couple of conclusions. Darkness, walking in darkness, is this idea that we, which he explains it further. We have to read a little bit further to really understand what he's saying, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a preview that we don't sin, that we don't really have true sin, that we don't really mess up all that much. If we walk around this darkness that we don't need a savior, because remember in, Ju- in, in Pharisaical Judaism, they had done everything they could to, uh, to make it so that they didn't violate the law, that they didn't sin. So if I don't sin, then how do I even need a savior? And so he's writing saying, if that's darkness, if you're walking around in darkness, you're walking around darkness and you say that you have fellowship with God, then you're a liar. You, you, there's no truth in you. But if we see the truth, to see the light, of what he's done and who he is, here's what we have. We've cleansing from all sin. So if Jesus, if the blood of Jesus cleanses all sin, let's just use some, you know, fifth grade math here. If the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, then how much sin is left in need of being cleansed? None. And that's just verse 7. We haven't got to verse 9 yet. So if we just actually read in order verses 1 through 7, then we've already developed a conclusion that the blood of Jesus, wow, we did sing about it. It, it. There is power in this blood. It cleanses from all sin. So, um, but here's the darkness that he's referring to. He gets specific about it. Because there is a group of people, and they call them the Gnostics. Theologians call them the Gnostics. But there's this group of people that say, you know, there, perhaps it's possible that we've not sinned. Because if we have sinned, then how can we ever have fellowship with God? So maybe it's just that we've never sinned. We have no sin. And so John is exposing this misunderstanding going into verse 8. He says, if we say, now who's this we? If we say that we have no sin, let's pause right there. John says, if we say we have no sin, would John say this? Would John say, I have never sinned? No, because we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he said, we, he said, if we say we have no sin, but would John do that? Would John say we have no sin? Of course not. But he says we, isn't he including himself? So who is the we? I hear John saying anyone. If anybody out there, any red-blooded human being out there says that they have no sin and there is no need for Jesus to become flesh, to die for their sins, then they're deceiving, he says ourselves, but the point is they're deceiving themselves. They're deceiving and the truth is not in them, the us. Because John, John wouldn't believe this. But yet he's placing himself under this pronoun of we and us to, uh, for emphasis just to simply say, even if I, if anybody says this, then the truth isn't in them, including myself. This is important because this is the verse right before verse what? Nine. So John says, if we say, we have no sin. And John would never do that. He would never say he has no sin, but yet he says we. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, verse 9, and here it is in context. If we 
confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from, here it is again, all unrighteousness. So John says, if we, because here's the argument that I hear all the time in 1 John 1, 9. John says we, he's including himself. So he's saying we, I, John, need to confess my sins in order to get forgiven of my sins. How can you say it's not for John? He says we. Well, the verse before, he wouldn't include himself even though he says we. He doesn't say that he has no sin. He doesn't say that he has no sin. And so here in verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess, simply in the Greek, is homologeo, which means to say the same thing. If we confess, we're saying the same thing about sins. So John is writing to a group of people who apparently have this concept that they've not sinned, that sin doesn't dwell in them, that sin isn't an issue with them. And John is saying, guys, if that's the truth, if you really think that sin isn't a real deal in you, then the truth isn't in you. We need to get truth in you. How do we get truth in you? You need to change what you're saying. You need to change what you're thinking. You need to stop uh, disagreeing with God and start agreeing with God. You need to confess your sin. Confess the fact that you've missed the mark. Confess the fact that you've fallen short. You would just agree with him. And God is faithful. He is righteous. He's just. And then we have these, uh, don't want to get into the weeds of, of, of Greek grammar, but just bear with me for a second. This is an infinitive. Anybody heard of that phrase before in English, an infinitive? All right, this is in Greek, this is an infinitive. But it's an aorist infinitive. Okay, what does that mean? Aorist in the Greek is past tense. So if I were to say Jesus died for me, that would be aorist tense, past tense. This is past tense. This is aorist tense. But because it's an infinitive, it's kind of confusing. Why would he put in an infinitive aorist? They, they don't really go together very well. An infinitive gets its it's timing from the main verbs in general, but yet it's aorist and all of these are present tense. He's saying if, you, if, we, if anybody right now confess your sins, hey, he's faithful and just to forgive you. But he uses aorist, past tense, to communicate this uh, infinitive of to forgive and to cleanse. That's also aorist tense, past so when we read this in English, here's how we read it. If we at any point in time confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And at that moment, he will then cleanse us. He will then forgive us from those sins. That's how we read it in English. That's how I read it in English, at least. But what I'm trying to communicate is in the Greek that this is not present tense right here. This is aorist for a reason. And so we should be careful to not read this as he, if we do this, then in that very moment, he does this. Because I don't think that's what he's communicating. Because if he did, he would put this as present tense, not past tense. So I would read this, and I could be wrong. I'm not a Greek scholar. I, did, I took seven semesters of it, but I'm not a Greek scholar. But I read this as, if we, anyone, confess, agree that we have sin, that we have missed the mark, that we are in need of Jesus, here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of it. He is faithful. He is righteous. He is just. Here's what he's just. He's already done this. He's forgiven us. He's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. You say, well, you're kind of reading into that because that's not what it says in English. Okay, I'll give it to you. We're going to keep reading, though, a few more verses because John gets super uber clear. 
as well. But who's the we? Up in verse 8, the we was anyone. And I'm suggesting here in verse 9, the we is simply anyone. If anyone changes their mind, it's called repentance, and says, I, I used to think that I didn't have sin, that sin wasn't an issue, and now I do. If anyone agrees with God that sin is an issue, he's faithful, he's just, and here's the beauty of it. The forgiveness has occurred. The cleansing has occurred from what? all unrighteousness. So let's just pretend that that salvation at the moment of salvation, let's just pretend that that's the moment at which forgiveness happens. I don't agree with that, but let's just, let's just pretend. Okay. Let's just pretend that at the moment of salvation, that's when you're forgiven. He's faithful and just when you believe you're immediately forgiven. When you believe you're immediately cleansed from what? All unrighteousness. So what unrighteousness at that moment is left to be forgiven? There's no asterisk here. There's no like, see the footnotes. It is all. Because remember in verse 7, he says, the blood of Jesus cleanses all sin. He doesn't say all past sins. He, and your future sins are up to you to ask for. It's all sins. Let me, let me ask you this. How many of your sins were future sins 2,000 years ago? A whole of them. You didn't have past, present, and future sins 2,000 years ago. You just had future sins 2,000 years ago. And he has forgiven them all. Now look at verse 10. This is the last verse of chapter 1. If we, here's the we again. If we say that we have not sinned, would John ever say that? Of course not. Of course John wouldn't say that he's not sinned. Again, I, I think it's the anyone. If anyone says that anyone has not sinned, that person makes him, God, a liar. And his word is not in us. Because the truth is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so there's a group of people that are not in fellowship with the Lord. They're, they've re, they're rejecting something. They're in this darkness, this darkened understanding of what God has really says and God has really done. And John is trying to bring them into the light so that his joy would be full, that they would be in fellowship with him because his fellowship with, is with Jesus. And he's saying, if you guys say that you're not, or anyone, if anyone, and I'll put myself underneath this umbrella, if anyone, we, whoever you are, says that you have not sinned, you're making God a liar. You're saying God's a liar because God has said that we have all sinned and come short of his glory. That's what Paul says about it, at least in Romans. And so John would never say that he's not sinned. John would never say that God is a liar, but yet he uses the we. In fact, in both in English, but in Greek as well, there's a usage of this we, it's called the editorial we, where the person just puts themselves underneath that umbrella, certainly never truly referring to themselves. Here's an example. Um, if you're in a work environment and, you know, there's a group in that, in that work in your team who's uh, kind of not really uh, working together very well. They're really kind of maybe slouching. Maybe they're not taking it very seriously. And maybe you're the team leader. Maybe you're not. But you, have, you, you, you don't want to be that guy who, like, points the finger and waves it in their face and say, you better or, or else, you know. So what do you do? You say, guys, look. We've got to come together. We've got to work. We've got to, right? That's the editorial we. 
you're not suggesting that you're not already on board, that you're not ready working as hard as you can, but you in a sort of communicative style to try to in, get, come into fellowship with them is we've got to get together and figure this thing out. Well, you've already got it. You're, you're already on board, but you say we nonetheless. And I hear John saying the same exact thing. But let's just say that we're still confused. Let's just say, you know, Walt, that sounds really fancy and, and fine. You use all those aorist words and, you know, some, some uh, infinitives, you know, okay. But, but that's in English, that's, it sounds very clear. If we confess, then he forgives us. I'll give it to you. Let's just keep reading. Let's don't let something that is a little confusing to first read, at first view, don't let that muddy something that is super clear, no questions about it. So let's just keep reading. What's the very next verse after verse 10? Verse what? That's a, that's a, that's a trick. You got it, John. You got, you got it. You got it. John, 1 John 2, 1. This very next verse. So, so don't like get confused. This is, we're not changing you know, subjects here. He's just rolling into it. it, it my, my little children, hear the passion he has with them? The desire, my joy to be complete, that you believe that you have fellowship with us. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Now, why would he write that? Why would John write people to say, I'm writing this so that you don't sin? I have a suggestion for you. Because he is telling them that they are completely 100% forgiven of all their sins. And he's saying, listen, I'm writing you're completely forgiven of all your sins, but I'm, I'm writing this so that you don't keep sinning. Because see, it could be easily misunderstood, easily taken. Well, hey, if I'm already forgiven of all my sins, David, then let's, let's just go live it up. Because if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, then that is certainly a way that someone could take it. If you went to the Old Testament and you told, you know, the Benjamites who are kind of, you know, they were kind of, you know, the, the, uh, the ones that kind of did some crazy things anyways. And if you were to tell the Benjamites, you'd say, hey, guys, look, here's the deal. You don't, you don't, have, to t- you don't have to do any more sacrifices. All your sins have been taken care of. You don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. Well, those Benjamites are probably going to do what Benjamites were doing under the law, under the sacrificial system, only with more degree of it, sinning and having these crazy things that they were doing in the Old Testament. And so John is writing saying, guys, I'm writing this stuff to you. I'm writing to you, revealing to you that you're completely forgiven of your sins so that you don't sin, so that you stop sinning, to let you know that you're free of this thing of sin and death. But... Or, and if anyone sins, then it's going to happen. This is a first case conditional, meaning it's going to happen. If anyone sins, and it's going to happen, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. So as I'm writing to this, this so that you stop sinning, so that you don't sin, so you see the truth of your freedom from sin, your forgiveness of sin. But check this out. When we do sin, there's... There is an advocate, Jesus Christ himself. This word advocate, it's the same word parakaleo, paraklete, where we get John describing the Holy Spirit as this in John chapter 13, 14, and 16. When he says, I'm going to send the helper to you. I'm going to send someone who will help, who will reveal to you that which is mine, because that's what's now is yours. And so Jesus, uh, John is saying, when, when we do sin and we're going to remember that there is a helper, there is someone who has helped us 
with the Father. But again, I, I've taken this verse and I've taken it to say this. Hey, when you do sin, remember that there's someone who can in that moment when you sin help you out. And you go back to verse 9 and said, just confess your sins and he'll help you out. See, I even took this incorrectly. But he's not saying that. He's not saying when you sin, remember, you have a helper who can then at that moment forgive you of your sin. He's saying if you do sin and you're going to sin, remember, there's someone who has helped us. There's a helper with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who is righteous. So how did Jesus help? He calls him the advocate, the helper. What did he advocate? What did he help with? And that's verse 2. Check this out. So remember, we're going from, okay, verse 9, I'm not really with you 100%. Well, it looks like it's you confess, then you're forgiven. I'm not going to take you at your word on this Greek stuff. So so let's get a little bit clearer and get a little bit clearer. And here's verse 3, verse 2, just three verses later. And here's John clarifying it all. And then there's one more verse after this that to me puts it so crystal clear, it's undeniable. And he himself, talking about Jesus, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So John calls Jesus this big P word, propitiation for our sins. What in the world is that? Do we use that around the breakfast table in the mornings? You know, hey, at 5.30 today, I'm going to go to the post office and get a propitiation for my stamp. You know, like, what, what, what is this propitiation? What does it even mean? And here's part of the problem. We don't know what some of these words mean. And so we just don't even, like, look at these verses. We just kind of quote them. We even tattoo them on our skin. But we don't even know what they mean sometimes. So what is propitiation? Well, I'll use a couple of synonyms appeasement. He is, he himself, Jesus, he himself is the appeasement for our sins. There's a synonym for propitiation. He's the appeasement. There was a price to be paid. There was a deficit and there was a price that was paid to appease the deficit. Appeasement. Here's another big theological word that we don't use for anything else, but I'll throw it out there. Expiation. It's the total removing, the total uh, elimination of our sins. Total removing. I want us to compare two words here. One is what John calls Jesus here, the propitiation for our sins. And let's go back to the Old Testament where we use this other word when they would sacrifice animals. It started with an A. Anybody know that word? Atonement. Let's talk about these two words. Atonement literally means to cover, okay? means to cover something. And so in that context, the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats was uh, um, meant to cover over the sin of man. Um, in fact, it was a way of covering over God's wrath against the sin because it never took away the sin, never dealt with the sin. Here's something really cool I didn't put in my notes, but this is really, really awesome. You have the, in the temple, the, the, the tabernacle in the temple, the most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant, right? You have the cherubim, seraphim, whatever they are, they're sitting on top of it. And in the middle is called the what? The seat of mercy. That's exactly right. And the angels, they're staring down at the what? Seat of mercy. Inside of the Ark was a copy of the what? 
Ten Commandments. And so these angels are staring down at the, the Ten Commandments and in the realization of the violation of Israel of those very Ten Commandments. And so what the priest would do, the high priest, once a year, once he would make the sacrifice, the scripture talk, tells us, he would go in and he would sprinkle the whole entire mercy seat with blood of this animal. Why? To block the view of these angels who were the mediators of the first covenant, to block their view of, not mercy, this is mercy, to block the view of the Ten Commandments inside. They were being covered by blood. That covering of the mercy, see, the covering of that which Paul says uh, stood against us, the Ten Commandments, the law, the covering of that was what's called atonement. It kept covering the violation. It kept covering. And so think about it, generation after generation after generation, the continual covering of blood. When blood is, I cut my finger at a, a customer's house the other day and I blood all over the place and, uh, and it dried. And it's like, you know, I got to clean that up obviously. But, um, but, but it just dried there, you know, hard. Imagine just year after year of this blood on this, um, uh, the, the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, layer after layer after layer after layer of dried blood covering the view of the angels towards the Ten Commandments. It was a covering. And why was it a covering? Because it couldn't do anything about the sin. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do anything about the sin itself. And so it tried its best to cover the violation, to cover the commandments that stood against it. And what does Paul say in Colossians chapter 2? That the death of Jesus on the cross not just covered the violation, but it actually by nailing, it nailed the violation itself to the cross, thus removing that which stood between us and him, the law itself. And so the covering in the Old Testament is atonement. It's a covering like, hey, don't look here. Don't look here. But there is nowhere that I know of of any apostle, and I've searched for it, that describes what Jesus did as atonement. Nowhere. There, there's a whole theological system called Calvinism that one of their letters and their thing is about atonement. But that's not what the scripture reveals about atonement. There is no atonement of Jesus' work was not an atoning work. He didn't cover anything. What did he do? He propitiated. He totally removed. He totally expunged. He totally eliminated the price, the debt, the deficit. He himself was the price. He himself was the appeasement of God's wrath for our sins. So our sins have not just simply been covered and then what do we say? Oh, well, when you sin, pray, ask God to forgive you so that you can get that sin. What? Under the blood. You ever heard that phrase? Under the blood. That one crawled out a little bit. We you pray to get that one back under the blood. You heard that? Foolishness. I used to say it. Foolishness. Because Jesus didn't cover sins. He was the propitiation, expiation. He completely removed it. And Psalms actually prophesies about this. As far as the what is from the what? Is that true? Is that true? Because if we say he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west, but you better pray to receive forgiveness of your sins, get it back under the blood, that's at best double talk. If nothing else, it's Christian gymnastics where we're contorting scriptures to say what it's not really saying.
Now, and Paul, uh, John says he's the propitiation, he's the appeasement, he's the total removal, expiation for our sins. Not only ours, who's, who's the us and ours? I suggest to you that he's probably thinking of the Jews because all this was for first the Jew. But not only ours, but also those of the what? The whole world. Who do you think he's thinking of now here? The Greek, the, 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 the Gentile. Now, we might want to throw on some brakes here. Well, wait a second, Walter. Are you suggesting here then that the whole world is forgiven, therefore the whole world is saved? Are you a universalist, Walt? Not at all. I'm not, and I don't think John was. Because remember, it's not the forgiveness of your sins that is salvation. It's the impartation of his life into you that's salvation. John, Paul makes that so clear in Romans chapter 5. It's not the forgiveness of sins that is salvation. We are saved not by the forgiveness of sins. We are saved by his life infused into us. Now, forgiveness of sins is a prerequisite for that. It must happen. Otherwise, if forgiveness of sins didn't happen... And he imparted his Holy Spirit into us. Well, first of all, that can't happen because there's, we have a sin and wicked heart. If he put his Holy Spirit in us, the very same next second that when we sin, his Holy Spirit has to what? Leave us. Ask Adam and Eve about that one. Right? It had to leave. Because his Holy Spirit and sin cannot reside in the same location. And so this is not universalism that all are saved this is gospel all are forgiven the blood of Jesus wow we did sing it there is power in the blood it did remove it he himself is the propitiation for not only our sins but the sins of the whole world now there's one verse left we're going to skip a few one two skip a few go to verse 12 there's some great stuff in three through eleven that I'm not trying to skip out on. It's great stuff when seen in this beautiful context of the, the commandment, which he dis, defines for us. I think it's in chapter three or four, which is to believe. But look at verse, verse 12. So, so, so follow with me. You say, you know what, Walt? Verse, verse nine, okay. It sure sounds like to me that it's an ongoing deal. If we confess our sins, then he forgives us. It's a, we do this, then he does that. And so that means our forgiveness is based on our memory, our keeping short accounts. We are in the driver's seat to which if I, if that's what you believe, I believed it too. It's like, good luck with that because it's, it's not going to turn out well. So if you don't buy into what I'm saying, as far as chapter one, let's let John's very own explanation help us understand these things. Chapter 1, verse 12. He says to them, My dear children, I'm writing to you. To you? To you who? To you who are struggling in your fellowship with us. To you who are not believing what we're believing about the Christ. I'm writing to you because your sins, the very sins that you say you don't even have, your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. So if first John 1 9 is still a little fuzzy, you still say, yeah, but that sounds like it's an ongoing progressive thing. Then let John's own clarity of what is this? 13 verses later, 
ring true for you. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. I know we've done a lot of Greek stuff already. Let me just say one more thing about Greek. This verb right here, have been forgiven. First of all, it's perfect tense. I know we don't have perfect tense in English. We have present and past, basically, and future. But in the Greek, they have this thing called perfect tense. And here's what perfect tense means. That there was a point in history that something happened. So put a little dot right there in the timeline, if you will. And the, the consequences or the repercussions of that event continue until this very moment. That's perfect tense. So let's see. Um, trying to think of one off the top of my head. I should have come prepared. Sorry. Uh, well, let's just talk about this. Cut to the chase. We have been forgiven. Forgiveness happened at a point in time on the cross 2,000 years ago. And the repercussions, the consequence, the results of that carry forward to this very moment. There was a point prior to forgiveness where they didn't apply. It didn't, it, there, was, there was unforgiveness of sin. There, there was a lack of forgiveness. But at, there was a point in time on the cross 2,000 years ago, or for John, he's like, you know, just a few years ago, when all sin for all man came to an end, we have been forgiven. And that forgiveness continues to today. He could have said, my dear children, I write to you because your sins were forgiven or he did forgive your sins. Like it happened at one point in time, but we're not really sure about right now. That could have been the way he used it, but he didn't. It's perfect tense, which means it happened and the results of that continue to this very moment. But it's also, this is what's really cool too, passive voice. You know, the difference between passive voice and active voice, like, dude, you're getting into some English grammar stuff here that I'm not cool with. Um, Active means that the subject is doing the work. You know, the dog sat, right? The dog is the one doing the sitting, right? But if you say the dog was sat, I don't know if that's good English, but somebody sat the dog, somebody else, not the dog. It was, the dog was passive in it. Something happened to him. So here's, this is passive. Your sins have been forgiven. You didn't do it. You didn't ask in order for it to happen. It was done passive. He himself was the propitiation. Not your confession of your sins resulted in the propitiation. Your, 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 your uh, confession of sins just simply means you're agreeing with God. You're believing God about what he's already done. Your sins have been forgiven. Past tense, perfect tense, and passive voice. You, you can't even undo that if you wanted to undo it. God's not going to hold your sins against you, even if you want him to hold your sins against you, because he did it. And why did he do it? How fully did he do it? For his name's sake. I know I've talked about this verse before in the past because it's such an awesome verse. Um, but if, G, if God forgave us our sins for our name's sake, he probably would have done it just as sufficiently, just as completely, but John makes it clear that he didn't forgive us just for our name's sake. He didn't look at you and say, you know, I'm going to do this for you. He did it for him, for his name's sake. And if God is going to do something for his own name's sake, here's the question. How thoroughly do you think he's going to do it? 
right? Is he going to cut corners? I mean, for crying out loud, we just sang the song. When he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, the scripture is so clear on how thoroughly he separated the waters. Do you remember what it talks about? They walked across on what? Dry land. He's thinking separated the water molecules from the ground. Not just the water you can, you know, you think of, but the ground itself, he did it so thoroughly. They walked across on dry land. When he said waters split, it wasn't just a halfway job. Even the molecules, H2Os, whatever you call them, in the ground, compounds, I don't know, even those that obeyed his word. And then when they walked across the Jordan into the promised land, same deal, dry land once again. When God does something, he doesn't do it halfway. He doesn't do it when his own name is at stake. And so if he forgave us our sins for our name's sake, okay, maybe there's a little bit of room there where we could say, you know, it's for our sake, you know, his name's not on the line, our name's on the line, so maybe he cut some corners, but he did it for his name's sake. So how powerful is this blood we sing about? How majestic is his name? If he thinks his name is pretty majestic, then I would probably say that this sin has been forgiven. If he doesn't think much about his own name, then I'd say, well, then it's probably not completely forgiven. So why is this important? Why is this the first one we're going to take a look at at this thing called Christian gymnastics? Why is this really all that important? Does it really matter that we believe that all of our sins are forgiven or none of our sins are forgiven? And, And the answer to this question is way more than the time we have remaining. But I alluded to this at the beginning. Paul says, in essence, that the point, the joy, the focus of the Christian walk is to get to know God himself, to get to know Jesus, that you may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, that you may know the height, the width, the depth, the breadth, etc., of the love of God towards us. Paul says the Christian life is for us to know him. How can we know him if we don't know what he's done for us and to us? How can we know him? That's the point of the Christian life. Apparently, according to Paul, to know him, to know a person. How can we know him if we don't know what he's done? If you've read a biography, you've read a lot about what somebody has done. I mean, that's just how it works. You get to know somebody by what they do. That can be good and that can be bad. I, I didn't know this person until they did this. Now I really know them. And that could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. But we get to know the Lord by getting to know what he's done. And so our journey marker this morning is we'll never, we'll never know God until we know what he did. And if we are not convinced that he has completely taken away the sin of the world, then we're going to struggle to know him. If we think that our sin management is our uh, uh, left up to our memories to try to keep short accounts with him of, of doing business with God, of asking for forgiveness in order to be, get forgiven, et cetera, and so forth, then we're simply not going to know him. We're going to think wrongly about who he is and about, because we're thinking wrongly about what he's done. And I've have confessed and I will continue to confess that I knew him wrongly for the vast majority of my life. And I'm so grateful that 
at least this part is a something I know him wrongly no longer in because he has completely taken away the sin of the world. And so now what's left, what's left for the unbeliever is to believe what he's done. What's left for me is to continue to grow, continue to know, continue to live in the reality of what he's done. John said, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. I'm writing you that you're completely forgiven so that you realize that you don't have to do this anymore. That this isn't who you are, that you've de- you're dead to this, that this is in your rearview mirror, not in your front windshield. So we're never going to get to know God until we know what he did. So hopefully this is um, some level of, uh, of, uh, of help to those who have come across 1 John 1, 9, um, thinking that it is the Christians borrow soap, that when we mess up, when we sin, there's a need for us to, um, to get further forgiveness, to get cleansed so that we can be, get back in right relationship with God, all this sort of stuff that's completely, again, it's made up. It's nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere in the new covenant, no apostle, even John. He clarifies everything. By the time he gets to chapter 2, verse 12, it's clear. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. And if we take that statement, your sins have been forgiven for his namesake, and then we go back 13 verses earlier to chapter 1, verse 9, and say that your sins are forgiven on a continual basis as you ask him to forgive you of your sins, then what sport are we now participating in? It is a sport, right? I'm pretty sure it is. Christian what? Gymnastics. And we're contorting the scriptures to say what it's not saying at all. And the result of that is we don't know the Lord for who he truly is. And if we don't know him for who he truly is, then we're not growing as believers. We're not maturing as believers. There's no way to mature as a Christian if we don't know what he's actually done for us. And we're called to maturity, not to immaturity. I'm going to say this and I'm going to be done. I already referenced uh, Kanye West already this morning. Why don't not throw him out here again? You know, I've seen so many people say, let's pray for Kanye. You know, the Lord's done something good. Let's pray for him. Let's pray for him. Let's pray for him. And as I listen to his stuff, I'm not saying everything is like, you know, perfectly on spot and that I would endorse every single word of his latest, his, his album. But man, I, re- I listen to it and I weep with joy for what the Lord has done in somebody's life. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's pray for Kanye. But man, I think we should be praying for all these people who say, let's pray for Kanye. <laughs> I mean, does that make sense? Like, because Kanye has not been corroded, at least in this album, with, with this religious addition of Jesus plus this other stuff. He raps, sings, whatever you call it, so boldly about the forgiveness. The captives have been forgiven. Um, I'm like, yeah, let's pray for him for sure. But let's pray that other people hear what he's saying. Because that message needs to be heard. And so... Uh, Let's just pray. So anyways, so that's the first one. We're going to take a look. Um, There's a question a a time ago about the Lord's Prayer. We're going to take a look at the Lord's Prayer, uh, trying to untwist, uncontort that uh, whole passage, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in general. Uh, There's been some questions about uh, 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 baptism, about the Lord's Supper, about uh, women covering their head, um, uh, about no uh, women, you know, I don't permit women to speak, Paul says. Um, there's questions about, um, oh, about, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, did Jesus die for just a certain group of people, you know, individual selection or, or is, is heaven available to anybody? Is it, you know, uh, uh, that whole Calvinism thing that we'll talk about? Um, and, and then anything else that you may, you know, want to throw out, we'll just see how long this goes. Maybe it takes us to the end of the year, maybe further. I really don't know. I just want to, you know, try to untwist, uncontort, decontort uh, some of these passages that have so tripped us up. And I think this one is probably the biggest one it, that, that, that covers so many different groups, um, whether they be you know, Catholic or Protestant or denomination. This one verse here seems to have uh, stymied spiritual growth in so many people, including myself as a, as a Baptist. But it's not just about Baptists. It's just about um, not clearly seeing what Jesus really has done. Any closing uh, thoughts or questions or, but what about, or how could we come to this conclusion or this is helpful, this is good? Yeah. So I just think we need to realize that um, our gymnastics is in God. God's the gymnast. He's the ultimate gymnast. And in Hebrews 8, I really love this because, you know, human beings, we're, we're all so inward-looking, and we think, well, after I review, let me review the evidence, let me, let me see what <coughs> scripture says, or I like, I see what this person's doing, and I see something different in his life, and I'm, I'm mulling all this over, and I'm going to decide <laughs> so mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. we do, you know, mm-hmm. and even after we're a Christian, mm-hmm. it's like, I'm learning, I, I'm going to come to this understanding better as I grow and mm-hmm. that's what the, a lot of the Christian church does right, yeah. you, you um, becoming more and more sanctified Yeah. and uh, I love this in, in Hebrews 8 because it's the Old Testament the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and they were both by God mm-hmm. they, were his, they were his fields right. you know, they weren't right. man's yeah. but in 10 He's talking about there will be a new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. Also, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's all about, you know, he's Mm. saying it's all going to be... Up to him, up to right? Him, yeah, as God, and yeah, they won't have to struggle at all because I will be in them, right? My law, I will be in their heart, yeah, and I will guide them, right? Yeah, he goes, me. he goes on to say, because that's a quote from Jeremiah 31, he says, You know, you won't be teaching, know the Lord, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, and then there's the greatest FOR, I will be merciful to their iniquities. And I will remember their sins. No, no more. That's it. So if God's not remembering our sins, there's nothing for us to yeah. do about them. Right. Yeah. I mean, does that mean that we can't talk to God about where we've messed up? Of course not. Let's talk to Dad about our struggles. But let us not think, now that I talk to him, now I'm forgiven of them. Because that is not the gospel. Uh, that is not good news. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm like you. I some years went to a church that kind of preached along those lines and get, get your heart right with God. Yeah. Right. Yep. 
I mean, it's so reassuring and comforting to hear God say that, that um, after he puts that new life in us by his Holy Spirit, he doesn't remember any of our sins, future, past, present. Right. They're all gone. Yeah. You know, we talk about the power. There's power in the blood. Well, would we not all agree that God is infinite? Of course we would. Would we not all agree that God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things? Of course we would. But what is God under his own testimony saying about his omniscience? He's saying the blood of Jesus was so great that it has actually wiped something from my memory. And what is that thing? Your sins. I will remember your sins no more. That does not speak to the weakness of God's mind or memory. That speaks to the greatness of the propitiation. Dude, this, uh, this thing of sin and counting of sins on God's behalf, it is so over. If we could just have a glimpse of it, it would totally radically change us. I've had so many testimonies of people, myself included, in certain areas who have said, Walt, I have struggled with this habitual sin, with that habitual sin. And not until I finally realized that all my sin, past, present, future, are 100% forgiven did I begin to gain true victory over such sin. That's, that, I write these things so you don't sin. Because it's a revelation of your cleanliness, your, how clean you are, that, uh, that leads you to not dabble with this stuff that's dirty. And it can't dirty you, but now you, do, now you realize the desires I've placed in you of who you truly are. I've satisfied you. I, yeah, I can keep going, but it's awesome when we see the truth because the number one response to most Christians, it was my response for years. If you tell somebody that all their sins are forgiven, they're just going to go out and sin because I didn't understand the life of God. I didn't understand that my salvation is not just forgiveness. It's a life within me, the life of Christ himself. And how do you teach that? That's a revelation. You know, you can't just like, all right, fill in the blank over here for this question. Like, it's not a, you don't get that didactically. That is something that he reveals to us, his life within us. Awesome. Any other thought? Yeah, Derek. I kind of thought, and then also a question actually following up right on that. So the thought is, I, I totally agree. It's, it's, uh, it definitely feels for being set free. I, I, the denomination we grew up in was, was very much about, you know, hey, come to the altar call, confess your sins every night. You never know when God's going to come yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, sure. You, know, you don't want to die or have him come yeah. back with anything on your account. So I agree, it totally is framed. I guess the, the question, and I think sort of the struggle, as you pointed out, a lot of people say, oh, let's just, let's just go on and sin then. And mm-hmm. You know, can, can you kind of see the, uh, that throughout the New Testament? Is, mm-hmm. you know, let's, let's go have a, you know, just go crazy at this point. And I'd be interested in your thoughts. So I, there are at least kind of three things that I jotted down of reasons then why we shouldn't sin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still... Sort of, you know, obviously there's a lot of kind of I don't want to say rules or commandments, but mm-hmm. you know, things are laid out. Mm-hmm. Ephesians talks about a lot. Mm-hmm. The reasons I jotted down, and I'd be interested for any any thoughts you have. One, it's it's pleasing to the Lord to live, you know, you know sort of in, in conformity with a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the second thing is because there are still earthly consequences mm-hmm. for our sin. Um, and the third is that you know it's a it's a good witness, that, you know, at some level yeah. for unbelievers, right? Yeah, so sure. Yeah, one of the things that attracts people in. Right. Yeah, I th- just kind of answer that. That's so what? You know, yeah, how do we take this? Right. No, I think those are great reasons. Um, I would probably some uh, a thirty-six thousand foot view summarize those all those into simply why should why why should I not sin now? It's because He loves me. 
it's, it, yeah, it's because he loves, yeah, it's, it's not who I, and then we, under that umbrella of he, his love for me, which we just got finished 40 weeks through John, because his love for me, now my satisfaction, my, my, my tank of, of desire and whatnot, of, 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 of affection and of whatnot that we turn to so many things in the flesh to fill, if that's, as that's being filled by him, and it is, but as we realize how it's being fulfilled by him, then now my appetite for these sinful things seems less and less. I, I, I can't, I, at least for myself, say zero because I am still in this body and the wiring of the old man, the thoughts of the old man are certainly still in this unredeemed mind. But it, that's, that's, that's the progress. And it's not a progress of sanctification. Which maybe that's one we'll talk about in this whole thing of undoing that. It's a progression of transformation. It's the transforming of this thinking that allows what has already fully happened within to come out. So the the umbrella for me is because of his love for me. And like Ryan said beautifully, now that that I'm growing in his love for me, what has he done to me? See, we talk about the death of Jesus and what he's done for me, and that's great, but there's a to me, and we've talked a little bit about Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. See, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 come alive once we realize what he's actually, that he's done something to me. Uh, Galatians 2.20 comes alive. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, this new life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so these, these coffee mug verses and tattoo passages, are, are, they now come alive in our spirit because of, of a revelation, not of a, again, not a, a teaching, a didactic you know, uh, message or, 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 or seminar, but by a revelation of his, again, for me, it's his love for me. And it all comes back to that. And so, so, so why, uh, yes, those are very practical, you know, because it's a witness, it's, it's you know, a, a, a motivation for faithfulness to my wife is because, well, he loves me and he loves her. And so I want to reflect that love, but, but it's not simply that it's bigger than that. It's that the desires of my heart have been completely satisfied in him that you may know him. And it's a knowing of him that that satisfaction becomes, uh, call it practical, call it real, call it whatever. Uh, because, and when we analyze our, our sinful patterns for what they really are. I'm turning to this, whether it be gossip, slander, pornography, you, know, you name it. I'm turning to this to satisfy something in me when I realize the, even the psychology of it. And then I realize, whoa, wait a second. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He is, is more faithful than I could ever imagine. And, and this acceptance and this, the one who flung the stars into space knows my name, you know, then now there is a fulfillment within me where I'm already full. Why do I need to run to these things? So it's not so much say no, say no, say no, say no, say no. Look, I'm all about, you know, say no to drugs, you know, that's great. But it's say yes or realize what I have. And that's where like the discovery of what I have is the message I try my best to communicate versus Let's work on saying no, you know, to these seven, eight, 10, 24 things, however many things that your denomination might have you say no to. Those will take care of themselves. I write to you that you don't do that 
as you receive what you do have in him, if that makes sense. So, so why do, what are the, why do I not, why do I not want to sin or, or why should we not sin is because we realize what we truly have. Um, and apart from realizing what we truly have, then I think the reasons for not sinning become very law-based, very um, legalistic-based, um, very um, superficial. It's a behavior management versus a revelation of a life within sort of a thing. So uh, that's a church, you know, short little um, answer, but that's... Um, uh, it all stems back to his love for me, his love for me, his love for me. If I love my wife, it's because he loves me. And so if he loves me, I want to be faithful to my wife, not because I don't want to get kicked out of the house, but because he loves me. And there is an earthly consequence. You're absolutely right. And so that, that can steer, that can help us as we realize the foolishness that's going to cause this person, that person. But again, I don't want to be faithful to my wife because I know she's going to kick me out of the house. Though that should and probably would happen, I want to be faithful to it because of his love for me, if that, you know, makes sense. Yeah. To add something onto that, I guess, and to uh, appropriate uh, millennial uh, terminology. Okay. Um, uh, I guess it comes down to how you self-identify. Okay. Self-identifying as uh, somebody who has the holiness of God in them, or are you self-identifying as... um, somebody who's still a dirty rotten sinner yeah and that's if, good if you're identifying as like a sinner then that's how your actions are going yeah. to come out because right. that's who you think you are yeah if you identify as a, um nope you're absolutely right with God's Holy Spirit, then, um, to some extent that comes out just because that's who you see yourself as yep yeah and it's not just that you've you've tricked yourself that's how you see yourself but that's truly who you are right right yeah. So I think also like I don't think God wants us to feel the burden of the duty sort of of becoming a good witness or being a good witness like it's up to us. To me that's like that's like telling a flower to try harder to be a flower. Right. Because kinda of like what Derek's saying. It is a flower. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's gonna grow to that fullness if it's got the right conditions. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. At what point is an orange tree an orange tree? Does it have to produce oranges to be an orange tree? We would all say no. It's an orange tree by its its essence of who it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Yeah. That's that's a huge revelation. Because see, all all this twisting and, and, and contortion all starts to, to, to make... It all starts to, again, decontort as we just realize the simple message, the, the profound simple message of Jesus plus nothing else. And it's challenging because we, certainly we've got to, or we have to, or whatever, but again, we come back to the word inheritance. What does the beneficiary have to do in order to receive this inheritance? Nothing. Yeah. That's a dead man thought right there. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Not that I don't... Yeah, of course. No, I, yeah. You, you, you couldn't convince me otherwise, Bob. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's, that's huge. 
that's huge because that, that, is, that is maturity. That, is, that doesn't mean that we don't still stumble in it. James says we stumble in many ways and we, we can and will. And, and, uh, but we learn, we grow, and maturity isn't I sinned five times yesterday and I sinned ten t- times the day before that and so I'm maturing. That's not maturity. Maturity is, is, is growing in the realization of truly who we are, what he's made us, his love for us, and the byproduct becomes sinning less. That's the byproduct, not the, the measurement of our maturity. Cool. Awesome. Because John talks about not sinning. He has chapter two, verse one. I write to you that you don't sin. He, but is that the focus? Is that his whole focus? Here's the 17 steps to not sin. Chapter one, verse three. No, it's a revelation of Christ and what he's done for you and to you. You're not going to get to know him if you didn't know what he did to you. Awesome. Great discussion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you for everyone who's here. We pray that this is encouraging and edifying. And I pray that you help us un- twist, uncontort, whatever the word is, uh, these, these things that have been twisted, these just gymnastics, this Christian gymnastics of twisting stuff around. And it is so prevalent. It's everywhere. This, he's forgiven you of all your sins until you sin. He's forgiven you. But now here's how you get forgiveness. What? Let that be seen for what it is. Double speak foolishness. And so, Father, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing. We thank you that there are questions that our spirit is crying out for, answers to. And we want your spirit to guide us, to lead us in the truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. If you have any topic or thought, you know, feel free to pass it along. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.